The second day of the retreat is a good deal easier uh, because of the absence of that extra talk and also because uh, the subject matter becomes clearer after you've done about five or six meditations. I think I ought to remind you that the, your silence is marvellous, but silence isn't the end. The end is that we would pray. I did say at the start of the retreat with Cardinal Newman that I can no more think with a mind not my own than I can breathe with lungs not my own. And therefore, that still remains true, especially at the meditations we make today. I must make them my own, agree with them or not agree with them, and I must pray about them. And if any difficulties occur, you must have a chance to ask them. I think it's unfair when a retreatant can't get the chance to go and get a question answered, especially if it is a serious question. Now, I haven't been able so far to be in my little room because the strain of preparing all these talks so close together makes it almost impossible for me uh, to do two things at once. But after confessions today, and you can always ask questions in confession if you want, if you sit down, as long as you don't uh, de destroy the faith of the people outside, um, then you can always, I'll be in my little room as far as I can after each talk. I can only see about 12 people, but there may not be more than 12, and Father Lear is there, and Father Stokel. I don't think questions really help. I think God answers most questions himself, but there ought to be a chance for that, especially today as the subject matter is of the highest importance. When I go up at night, when I go leave you all at nine o'clock or whatever after the last talk, you may wonder what I do. Well, I go up to the community recreation room with Father Stokel, and now that Goma Pyle, the Marine with a scruple, has gone, we can't face, usually, the television. It's so frightful. But what we do is Father Stokel puts on all these marvelous animal films that he has um, re recorded. So we sit there and we watch kangaroos and giraffes and goldfish and bats and every creeping thing going through its job, laying eggs, having intercourse, having babies, hunting, chasing each other. It's the most extraordinary experience to see these beautiful animals and the way they work. You've probably seen many of these excellent programs done by the National Geographic magazine and by the BBC and by one of your companies. And if you ever watch them, you will have been fascinated by anim animals. Even out here in the garden, you can go out and you look around and you can watch all these little insects and birds and there's something remarkable about animals which makes a very good meditation uh, in a retreat. Indeed, you may feel very much like Walt Whitman did. His famous words are worth meditating on because in one way they're true. And that he wrote, I could turn and live with animals, they are so placid and self-contained. I stand and look at them long and long. They do not sweat and whine about their condition. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. Not one is dissatisfied, 
Not one is demented with the mania of owning things. Not one kneels to another, nor to his kind that lived thousands of years ago. Not one is respectable or unhappy over the whole earth. And in a curious sense, it is true. We had a lovely war joke when your GIs first arrived in Britain. There was the riddle, what is the difference between a cow chewing grass and an American chewing gum? The answer was the look of intelligence on the face of the cow. <laughs> and I think it's true that when you look at animals, in so many ways they are superior to us. I couldn't get over it that in one of Father Stokel's beautiful films, the animals all got drunk. You may have seen it. They all went to a watering pool in Africa, and one of these mango trees or some other pl plant had shed all its ripe fruit on the ground. So there was alcohol galore, and they all ate it. All. And then they began to do the splits, and well, an elephant was going backwards. I never saw such a comic show. They were rolling around, the ostrich and everything, and all done without committing a sin. And then the next morning they showed a monkey waking up with a hangover. <laughs> but he didn't have to go to confession. And so the extraordinary thing comes when we look at all animals, the amazing thing is what makes us different? And what is it that they can do all these things and get away with this, and we can't? And the answer, undoubtedly, that Cardinal Newman gives, and it's his greatest sermon ever, is the question of conscience. He preached the sermon twice. Once when he was an Anglican at Oxford, and then changing it only a little to fit in with the liturgy, he preached it again much more fully in Dublin, in 1856. And you've got the text, that's why I'm so happy that Father Stokel had this book, because I'm quite by accident the book was here, and I pr printed the, much of his first paragraphs of his sermon, so you can follow them. It's the most wonderful passage ever. Not only is, does it answer so many questions and raise so many questions, but it also is such perfect English. I've often sat down and tried to see if I could improve in the, on the English by one word or one comma. I can't see any word that I could make better. The meaning is totally clear. And when you read it, and you ought to be able to today, and apply it to yourself, then you know exactly, you may say, I don't have that. Or you may say, I don't agree with that, I don't know. It's very provocative. And, and a wonderful statement. I'll read it to you because I think it's easier to hear than to read for yourself. But you could take it out and go through it word by word. It's on page 37 of my book. What is the main guide of the soul given to the whole race of Adam outside the true fold of Christ as well as within it, given from the first dawn of reason given to it in spite of that grievous penalty of ignorance, which is one of the chief miseries of our fallen state. It is the light of conscience, the true light, as the same evangelist says in the same passage, which enlightens every man that cometh into this world. That's from St. John's first chapter, which we used to say is the last gospel at Mass. 
whether a man be born in pagan darkness or in some corruption of revealed religion, whether he has heard the name of the Savior of the world or not, whether he be the slave of some superstition or in possession of some portion of scripture and treats the inspired word as a sort of philosophical book which he interprets for himself and comes to certain conclusions about his teaching, in any case, he has within his breast a certain commanding dictate. And this is where we really have to work out the words for ourselves, that I have inside me a commanding dictate. And Newman, by a whole string of little words, makes clear what he means by a dictate. Not a mere sentiment, not a mere opinion or impression or a view of things, but a law. An authoritative voice bidding him do certain things and avoid others. I do not say that its particular injunctions are always clear or that they are always consistent with each other. But what I am insisting on here is this, that it commands, it praises, it blames, it promises, it threatens, it implies a future, and it witnesses to the unseen. If you went through all those phrases, you'd see what an incredible world he describes. It is more than a man's own will. The man himself has not power over it, or only with extreme difficulty uh, did he, he did not make, uh, or only with extreme difficulty. He did not make it, he cannot destroy it. He may silence it in a particular case, he may distort its enunciations, but he cannot, or it is quite the exception if he can, he cannot emancipate himself from it. He can disobey it, he may refuse to use it, but it remains. This is conscience, and from the very nature of the case, its very existence carries out our minds to a being exterior to ourselves. For else, whence did it come? Or to a being superior to ourselves, else whence its troublesome peremptoriness? I say without going on to the question what it says, and whether its particular dictates are always as clear and consistent as they might be, its very existence throws us out of ourselves and beyond ourselves to go and seek him in the height and depth whose voice it is. As the sunshine implies that the sun is in the heavens, though we may not see it, as knocking at our door at night implies the presence of one outside in the dark who asks for admittance, so this word within us not only instructs us up to a certain point, but necessarily raises our minds to the idea of a teacher, an unseen teacher, and in proportion as we listen to that word and use it, not only do we learn more from it, not only do its dictates become clearer and its lessons broader and its principles more consistent, but its very tone is louder and more authoritative and constraining. And thus it is that to those who use what they have more is given, for beginning with obedience, they go on to the intimate perception and belief of the one God. 
It's a long quotation, but I wanted to put it before you because this is, I think, the greatest contribution Newman made. And he made it, I suggest, uh, by a statement that he added to it um, in the grammar of a sense. Because he there points out that most people think of conscience as the norm of, as a code of conduct. Whereas, in fact, it's the sanction of conduct. That would take you much prayer even to see the difference. I've always failed to find any but one example to try and explain what it, his words mean to me. In driving, in America or in my own country, we have a code of behavior. You call it the code of the road, I think. We call it the highway code. Now, this code is not conscience. This code is made up by the police, by the driving organizations, by motor manufacturers, by pedestrians and, and mayors of various different districts. And they bring out a very wise lot of laws about where to park, what signs to give, don't cross certain lines. We all know this. If we break the code, we're liable to get a ticket. Father Stokel had to pay 12 pounds in Oxford, having parked his car five times in the wrong place. <laughs> Luckily, the car was hard, so he didn't pay it. <coughs> uh, but we all know that the code of behavior is wise, it's well thought out, we all learn it, children are taught it, that's one thing, but that's not conscience. Conscience, as Newman says, is the sanction of behavior. It's inside me. If I'm driving a car, it's on the dashboard. When I drive, I have to make the choices. The code tells me what's wise, but I myself have to be a free agent. So I may quite rightly feel I can't pull up suddenly now, though the light has changed or I'll have an accident. The code may say stop at a red light. I know I can't do that here. Or again, on the dashboard, I get indications of how the car is running. This came home to me. I mentioned it in my book, but it really happened to two dear friends. Twice I saw chaps who disobeyed the dashboard. One was a dear man, an attorney, Dick, in Cleveland, Ohio. He took me out to, to, he took me to Cincinnati, or was bringing me home from Cincinnati, and as we got to Columbus, Ohio, and were on the expressway, middle lane, I said to him, you're running out of gas. He said, oh no, I think I can just make it. He couldn't. So the damn thing stopped in the middle lane in the rush hour. He had to get out with a can, walk miles, I said a prayer for his soul, and several for my own, because cars were passing so fast on each side, I had no light to show that, I, that the driver had been an ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, God, God got me out of that one, but I had an even funnier one happened when I was to see the beautiful city of Annapolis about three years ago. Well, the whole day went wrong. Bob was the man this time. He's both alive and will bear witness to it. Bob, it was a disaster. They, the party arrived late for me at the retreat house because she'd gone down to the pharmacy to get throat lozenges and the dog in the meantime had eaten all the sandwiches <laughs> without committing a sin. <laughs> so they said, oh, we'll get food when we get to Annapolis. We never got there. 
We started out, and a little red light on his dashboard began to flash. I said, oh, look, there's a little light flashing there. He said, he said oh, the bulb's loose, I'll stop it. He gave it a great bang with his fist. It went out at once. Five minutes later, the car stopped, <laughs> with clouds of smoke coming out of the back. We just about got to a garage, and there we spent the day, a happy day, having the car mended. Never saw Annapolis. The only joy was that he had brought martinis with him. <laughs> we had no sandwiches, no ice, but martini. <laughs> and I saw an icebox thing, and I said, oh, look, there's a place we can get ice. He said, oh, splendid. He put a coin in, but instead of the ice coming out in little bits, it came out in a great big lump as big as this altar. <laughs> Not only did this come out, but the manager came out swearing and said, that bloody fool, he's put the bags in the wrong way round. <laughs> well, now, there you have what, exactly what Cardinal Newman understands by conscience, and I'm sure he's right. When I was a boy, I thought the Pope was conscience. I thought that the Bible was conscience. What the sisters taught me, I thought, was conscience. No, some sisters are wise. The Bible, if understood rightly, is a very super guide. The Holy Father's infallible. They, they give me the norm. That's an intellectual thing which I have to keep. But when I'm driving, part of the norm comes into my head because I've read it, and so very often it they does affect me very much when I'm driving. But what I loved about Newman is that Newman says that at the very beginning it's a dictate, not an impression, it's not a view that you can hold or not hold, it's there and it ties you down. Then I liked it very much, he said, it praises. Now whoever thinks of being praised by their conscience? We take such a gloomy view that we think that conscience is always finding fault with us, which isn't true. If I'm sitting in my car and it, the engine's running smoothly and there are no rattles, then I don't have to sit there worrying in case one of the tires comes off. No, my, my conscience tells me you're doing okay. It even praises you. As with the boy who said no and then went to the orchard, he was delighted he did that. He would have been totally happy having changed his mind. So the idea that conscience is always nagging isn't true, but Newman says it blames, it promises, it threatens, it does all that, and it gives us a line to a world that the animals haven't got. No animal, as far as I know, has a conscience, and if I was an animal, I wouldn't want one. I'd be quite happy just eating us all day without a thought. Poor old Rachel's always rushing around trying to commit a sin, but she can't. But the strange thing is, whenever I see animals, I realize there's this big difference between myself and an animal. Animals simply can't do anything about it. Chesterton had that remarkable dialogue when he said, you know, you can't say to an elephant, be an elephant. It damn well is one. It can't fall from its high standards. But you can say to a man, be a man. And he says, if I see a crocodile eating a missionary, I can't say to him, pull yourself together and be a crocodile, because it's in the nature of a crocodile to eat missionaries if, it, if, they, if they can get them. <laughs> but you could say to the missionary, if he's having his seventh scotch, you could say, Father, pull yourself together and be a missionary. 
What is that? Now, we all know that's there. And therefore, with animals, we have no problem in seeing it. Uh, but then we've got to realize how different we are. And you can see what conscience can do. In that uh, book here that I, uh, at the very end, I've written about the three private diaries of the three great statesmen, all men, all of the world, all learned. And there you've got Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, who kept a private book, which many saints use for meditation. You've got Dag Hammarskjöld, who was secretary of United Nations, prime minister of Sweden, a banker of distinction. And you've got St. Thomas More. Um, Dag Hammarskjöld and Marcus Aurelius knew about conscience in a very strange way and settled with it. Thomas More, because of conscience, laid his life down. He, the bishops of England, all the bishops except one, St. John Fisher, all said we ought to take the oath to the king. It took a layman, a very distinguished man, to say, no, I can't do that. He actually, all the martyrs, they could have, he could have got off at any minute. No, he preferred to die. You can see it, of course, in many, many things of history. I think one of the most moving, if you like to read it, is Pontius Pilate. He knew our Lord was innocent, couldn't stand the Jews at any price, didn't want to get involved. His wife said it had nothing to do with this case. Pilate, therefore, you could quite excuse him and say, well, let the Jews get on with their own affair. Pilate suddenly knew that the prisoner in front of him was innocent. He did his utmost to get him off. He became the counsel for the defense. Nobody else said a word for our Lord except Pilate. And Pilate said to our Lord, at the, our Lord said about Pilate afterwards, your sin is not as great as theirs. As a civil servant of a foreigner, stranger in another country, Pilate did as much as he possibly could. He wasn't indifferent. He, had, he knew that this chap was being put to death wrongly. He sadly had to wash his hands at the end, as most civil servants do, but I think that our Lord quite understood his plight. You get a case like St. Edmund Campion, who's it's the 400th anniversary of his death this year. Uh, we'll have a, there'll be a mass at Tyburn on the day he died. Well, he took orders in the Anglican Church. He was a deacon in the Anglican Church, and for five years it nagged him, Five years he was miserable, and eventually he ran away from England to Ireland and then to France to come back into the church he knew was true. He'd tried to smother that. Mother Seton was the same, St. Elizabeth Seton. She made her last communion in the Episcopalian Church in New York. She was in terror, trembling. But she was told, you ought to keep to the faith of your fathers. And that's a strong motive for Jews, for Catholics, for Anglicans, for anybody. So Mother Seaton going to communion, uh, she went, she trembling all over, uh, couldn't swallow the bread, uh, came away totally sick. And then she said, I went to church this morning, an Episcopalian, and I've left it a Catholic. And when she went home, she said, I didn't dare even say grace for my, my little children. I thought, I'm not in the right church. Conscience is the most extraordinary thing. And we've seen it in history, we see it in every walk of life where people have this voice. And what it does is, I would like to stress that to you so much that it's the sanction of behavior. And if you read those words that Newman uses, 
It praises, it blames, it promises, it foretells the future. This is the hotline to God, which we'll think about at the next talk to see how so many pagans went along that line. But I think you'll, one day you'll realize what a great passage Newman wrote. And for us today, it's a very, very serious thing when it comes to marriage, birth control, abortion, all these things, a man has to follow his conscience. Cardinal Newman, to end with, right at the end of his life, he got a letter from the Duke of Norfolk, or he wrote to the Duke of Norfolk, and at the very end he put, and if by chance I am invited to a dinner um, where the um, toasts are to be drunk, I'll gladly drink a toast to the Pope, but to conscience first. Everyone was shocked at the time because they thought he said that the Pope came after conscience. No, what Newman said was, conscience comes from the very first moment of your birth, whereas the Pope doesn't come till ten years later when the sisters get at you. <laughs> You'll see that with your own little children. You, when you punish a dog, it's only to stop him peeing on the floor in the wrong place. But your, and your little children, when children get to a certain age, you keep on, stop that, don't touch that, leave that flex alone, leave the window alone, because children will pull everything to bits. No sin. But I've seen a child commit a sin at two years old, which no dog can do. I've seen a boy kick his sister's paint water over deliberately, and then tell me, look, she spilt her paint water, and I blew her up. And the boy went away with a, sort of doing a little sort of victory roll. <laughs> he had a little sparkle in his eye. He'd got her into trouble. They loved doing that. <laughs> he hadn't read Newman or he'd have to go to confession. But it's an extraordinary thing. Children, long before they're of a use of reason, they've got a conscience and they know very well that, what, that they're doing wrong. And what's so funny with a baby, as Newman says, very often little children who can hardly speak know when their mother or father are telling them a lie. If you look back on your life, I can remember when my mother would say something about how busy daddy was, I said, oh, hell, he isn't. 